So our series is When Loving is Difficult. When Loving is Difficult. And I loved what Pastor Paul said last week. He said, well, it's always difficult, right? It is always difficult. Love is one of those things that is almost always difficult. And that's why it's a good sermon series topic. And it's why uh, over this coming season, during these weeks, we're really going to be striving to uh, learn how to love in a more profound, um, more Christ-like way to, to learn, to grow, to deepen our ability to love when it's difficult. And I think especially this is important right now because we're in a season that's been challenging, right? We've been isolated. We've been polarized. We have been traumatized. We have been, you know, um, just sidelined, all kinds of things that have been really difficult and whatever else. And then, you know, on top of that, the Giants lost the other day. And so, you know, and here's Martin, a Dodgers fan, sitting in our midst. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we really need to work on this love thing. Um, need to learn to love when it's difficult. Um, and, and that's what we want to be doing uh, over this, this next series. We're, we're the third week into this. And, uh, you know, uh, love touches on so many different areas of our lives, our home life and our extended families. I know that some of you have shared with me that you've had some really challenging relationships with your extended families, your neighborhood, you know, the pandemic pressing in on people. You might be walking down the street and somebody just seems really irritable or difficult. And uh, maybe that's because they're grappling through some of the pressures in their own lives and what they've been dealing with. And you need, you need to call upon a deeper well of love in that moment. And so we want to we kind of work on that. Or maybe it's in your workplace or wherever it may be. And as we enter into some of the conversations that we're having, where we're crossing lines, you know, we've talked about uh, the conversation around race, both within, within the church and outside of the church. And in that conversation where we've got people of different ethnicity trying to come together and understand one another, um, we need oftentimes to be able to, to love in a deeper way, to be able to listen in a deeper way, to be able to appreciate in a deeper way. And so it's really important for that. You know, we aspire to be a multi-generational church. And uh, by God's grace, that's happening. But, you know, when we're talking about different generations, we're often talk, talking about different ways of looking at the world. And so when we come together in community, we need to know how and be able to cross over. Like, you know, I always thought with my parents, they were crazy. And now, uh, now that I have young adult kids, they think I'm crazy, right? There's just this cycle of the way we approach life rooted in when, the time when we grew up. And so we need love to be able to cross over that and to be able to have the kinds of conversations that we want to be having. You know, the polarization with respect to politics is another area where we'd want to see this happening. And the list could go on and on and on. So many different uh, areas in life where we're just called upon to love in a more deep way. And so in this series, that's what we're really after. We're after loving when it's difficult. Our curriculum is 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, we just had that read for us. Uh, thank you, Paul, for that. 
Um, 1 Corinthians 13, um, we're not going to get to that part yet, so just hang on to that. Um, We'll get to it in a minute. But uh, many of you have heard of this uh, particular passage probably in a wedding context. I know if if you've been at a wedding that I've done, you may have heard me preach on this particular topic. Um, This is one of my favorite wedding passages. And one of the things I often do is I'll say, you know, I'll kind of like if Jody and Andrew are the couple that are getting married, I'll say, I'll say, you know, um, uh, Andrew is patient. Andrew is kind. Like this is the call, right? And you could, and I'll say, you know, Jody is patient. This, you know, cause we're supposed to be like love and you could see the couple, you know, as I'm saying this, it's like, oh man, super overwhelming, right? It's overwhelming to think of living life in this way. It's, it, it's, it's extremely challenging. Um, but, but here's the thing, uh, that's beautiful. I think when we come to community like this, where we're studying the scripture, the curriculum isn't really merely just 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is like a pair of glasses, uh, a window helping us to look and to see God, actually, to have an encounter with God, because that's where the real transformation and the change can take place. So this is, when I, when I start thinking about it in that way, you know, we're not just playing with some ideas about love, like love could be this and love could, we're actually looking at an encounter with the living God who wants to have a relationship with us and wants to have an impact on the way that we think about love and the power that we have to love. And then the broken things about us that keep us from loving. So there's a lot of potential in this moment. So I want you to come to it with a sense of expectation uh, that God will meet us. Because today we're going to get into the nitty gritty of love. We're going to open the hood and think about, you know, some of the mechanics around how love works. And in particular, what's happening when we peel away from love, when we stop loving in the way that God intended for us to love. So I want you to put on your overalls and get ready to get a little grease on your hands um, because uh, I think, you know, um, if you're like me, as I sat with this passage over the course of this last week, there were things that God called out in me that needed to be called out, but maybe it was a little uncomfortable to have them called out. And that's just part of the process of growth and learning. So I want to encourage you to embrace that as we dig into this particular passage. What I want to focus on during the time that we have today is this verses 4 and 5. So just a a short little portion of what was read for us. Where it says, uh, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. And Pastor Paul worked through the first part of this passage, patience, last week. This week, I'm going to tackle these negative statements about what love is not. This is what love is not. And in the process, uh, I hope to build a greater understanding of, of what it means when, when, when basically God is saying love is collaborative, it's, it's, it's a working together of people. Sometimes we think of that word collaboration as almost like workplace speak. And that's not the way I want you to think. I want you to think about it more deeply than that. Collaboration, co-labor, working together. That's what we want to have come out of our time together this morning. 
And what the Apostle Paul says in this passage really has the potential to help us in all kinds of ways, whether it be, you know, uh, our marriages. Uh, we, Jody and I just celebrated 27 years this last week, which was a great, a great joy. Yeah, it's exciting. 27 years, that's starting to be some time. And, uh, you know, over the last six years or so, um, as I've shared in other sermons, we've been through a lot of challenges. It seems like the hits keep coming. Not that we've experienced things worse than other people in the world, but for us, it was just a season of real difficulty and challenge and one thing on top of the other. And that really pressed in on our relationship until we had to really, we had to finally say, you know, we need help. We need to build a team around us. So we found some mentors and some great people to walk with us as we were trying to navigate some really difficult challenges in life with respect to, you know, kids, uh, adult children, um, church stuff, um, beyond church stuff, you know, my work with church planting, with the denomination, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and then we, we even went and got some counseling as well, which we hadn't done in our marriage before. And um, I was just so glad that we did. You know, by God's grace, we, it was a moment in our relationship where we need to fight hard to get to a new level. And we were this last weekend down in Salinas on, in, a, in a little cottage on a farm, which is a place we've been going for 17 years since uh, our, really for our anniversaries oftentimes. And we were doing nothing. We just, we got up in the morning, we just read. And then we made this really sim- simple lunch. We had eggs and potatoes and we were sitting across from each other, eating and enjoying this very simple lunch and talking about what we'd been reading in the Bible that morning, talking about what we had been thinking and how we'd been processing life. And, you know, it's hard to describe these kinds of moments, but I had this deep sense of, of almost a kind of an arrival through after a hard season uh, to a place of deeper unity and togetherness and partnership and collaboration, co-laboring. And isn't there something tremendously sweet about that when you experience And it could be in a marriage. It doesn't have to be in marriage. We can experience this in working relationships with other people. We can experience it in friendships. We can experience it with our families, right? Where we just have that sense that there's genuine, authentic love at work. And... It touches some part of us that relates to how we were designed, the way that God made us, and it's powerful and beautiful. And so that's what's at stake when we talk about loving when it's difficult. We're talking about some really important things. And it could be with marriage, it could be with our kids, it could be with our extended families, it could be in our workplace, it could be in our neighborhood, it could be our church. All of these areas where we have relationships with others this is a key aspect of what we need to live into. So I've got two points as we look at verses four and five this morning. My first point is that we would learn to notice when we are not loving. Learn to notice when you're not loving. Because this is part of the entryway into something beautiful and powerful, which is the second point. And that is letting yourself be loved into loving. It's kind of a strange way to say it, right? We'll get to it. We're going to stay with this one. So keep that slide there. But the second point is going to be, let yourself be loved into loving. Let yourself be loved into loving. All right. So let's talk first about uh, learning to notice when you're not loving. The Apostle Paul gives us a really powerful list here um, to let us know when we're moving out of the realm of love. And I like to think of these terms as 
kind of warning lights, on, like on the dashboard of your car. There's a bit of an automobile theme already this morning, so we'll just go with that. Um, you've got lights on your dashboard that tell you when you need an oil change or when the engine is maybe in need of service or when you're running low on fuel. Or with these new cars, you know, it'll tell you like when your tire is flat. Maybe that's not new. Maybe that's been doing it for a long time. It's new to us to have a car that tells you when your tire is flat. Um, or uh, even when you're, when you're veering out of the lane. I kind of like that when we think about love. Because what the Apostle Paul is telling us is that these are the things, you know, these things in this, this part of the passage, this is when you know you're veering out of the lane of love and the warning light is going on. You need to pay attention. And if you pay attention to the warning light, then you'll be able to make changes, which we'll get to how those changes occur. But first of all, we just want to learn to notice when we're not loving. To learn to notice when we're moving out of the realm of love. I think that these various terms Paul raises loosely follow an arc of relationship. I I tried to just kind of sit and meditate on these terms this last week. And I was able to see that it sort of follows this, this arc of relationship. The beginning of a relationship and then as it sort of progresses. So I want you to try to imagine with me. Uh, two people who are coming together in relationship and they are, they're trying to move forward and to progress. And one of them will say is the imaginary non-loving person. Okay. And Paul is identifying the traits of that non-loving person. As we go through them, I think you're going to see, if you're like me, you're going to see, in fact, you're probably going to say, Pastor Andrew, how do you know so much about these terrible things, right? And the answer, well, is obvious, right? Uh, and, and I think you're going to see that some of these forces are at work maybe in you as well. This is why I say, get ready to get some grease on your hands because we're going to get in the, under the hood here a little bit with the Apostle Paul and try to understand it. So the first thing that happens when this non-loving person comes into contact with somebody else, uh, it says, Paul calls out, this person is predisposed with a sense of competition or rivalry. That's what that word zeal refers to. It was translated envy in the verse that we read. And both of them are suitable translations, envy or zeal. Zeal is oftentimes a word that Paul uses in a positive sense. But here he's using it in a sense of when you're coming together in the relationship, it's like you're trying to one-up the next person. You're coming with a sense of, of rivalry or competitiveness. You're already bringing that into the relationship. And so this is a, a reminder for us to be thinking carefully. When we enter into a relationship, are we concerned about ourselves? And this is a, a, a thing you're going to see throughout all of these. Remember, we defined what love is um, looking at what Jesus says. Jesus says that, you know, love is when you give your life, a, what, you lay down your life for somebody else. That's the, the ultimate definition of love. And so whenever we're, we're not doing that, whenever we're pulling it back and, and using the relationship for our own benefit exclusively or in a selfish way, then we're moving in the other direction. And that's what you're going to see is kind of at the core of all of these warning lights that show us when we're not loving. So the first one is coming into it with that, that posture of competitiveness and, and rivalry. This is something I've had to work on. You know, whenever they give me a personality test, like I come out super competitive. And I'm, I'm thinking, how am I supposed to be a pastor? That's not a pastoral trait, 
right? And yet, Lord, you called me to be a pastor. So I've had to work through what that means and how to sort that out. You know, all those years I spent on the bike, hammering hard on the bicycle, was to kind of sort through, you know, how do I, how, how do I put this in the right place in my life? Then this person, this imaginary non-loving person, um, kind of starts off by boasting. Boasting is an outward expression. It, it usually takes the form of words that we say. Uh, and, and he's boasting probably about the alignments and the accomplishments that have characterized his or her life. This non-loving person. Paul calls him and says, love is not boasting. Um, it does not boast. And, and so if the, but we, we look into the background of this text, and Pastor Paul really brought this out in a nice way last week. But you remember these people were posturing. They were trying to align themselves with different teachers and, and in a sense trying to say, look, we're the good crowd because we're aligned with so-and-so or so-and-so. They were saying in the beginning of this book, you know, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. And the different factions we're trying to gain a leg up on one another, you know, by alignments, by saying who they were aligned with. We can also do this when we, when we talk about accomplishments. You know, I've done this, or I've done that, or I've done the other thing. Uh, and what we're really doing here, I like this word for it, we're posturing. Now, what is, what is posturing? Posturing is an effort to sort of sway the relationship, or at least cause people to listen to you, because of your alignments or your accomplishments. You know, Paul's an interesting study in this. When he says, you know, let me boast. Uh, I was beaten and whipped and cast out. You know, when he boasts, he talks about all the things, all the ways that he's failed. Right? But we can do the, we can do the opposite. We can talk about all the accomplishments. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to give credibility or weight to ourselves so that when we so that you know I need to tell you about x and y because then when I talk about z you're more likely to believe me if I'm part of the Apollos party you're more likely to believe what I say so it's a, it's an effort to kind of manipulate the relationship and you'll see that again that sign of self-advancement which is at the core of so much of what this list brings out and very similar to that, the non-loving person, Paul uses the word arrogance, is a, is a very similar kind of word. Now, the word has to do with an object that's been bloated or, you know, sort of filled up um, like a windbag or, or something of that nature. Or it could be used to talk about, you know, a, an organ that is, um, that, has, that is bloated and maybe uncomfortable. So... Um, so, so, for example, you could apply this to, you know, the, the ego. Um, if, if your ego is bloated, you know, then when somebody bumps up against you, which happens in all relationships, just the, the normal course of life, we're rubbing against each other, we say things that are offensive, we, 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 we look past things that we should notice, right? People forget you, whatever it is, you know, if our ego is inflated, then there's that kind of, there's that sense of, 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 of wincing as if it's caused you a little pain. Like if you stub your toe and then somebody steps on that toe, right? It hurts, well, if your ego is inflated, if it's bloated, if it's arrogant in that sense, then when somebody snubs you, it's going to hurt. And that becomes a kind of a warning sign for you. As you think about being a loving person, if, that's, if, you're, if you're wincing, then, then maybe that's that, that warning sign to say, ah, I'm in the realm of arrogance. And arrogance is, is not love. That's what Paul says. So pay attention. 
Um, the, the non-loving person, just to keep rolling through these, then, and I think in the part of the relationship, you know, we're, we're moving towards, uh, the, the, just think of this as a, as a continuing uh, movement of the relationship. The non-loving person resorts then to, to rudeness to get his or her own way. Now, what is rudeness? The, the term actually means to behave improperly. And if you, you kind of spool that out and, and tease it out a little bit, what you get uh, is somebody who is failing to pay attention to the context in which the relationship is unfolding and the needs of the other person. Isn't this what happens when we get focused on ourselves and what's most important to us and what we want um, in a selfish kind of a way? then what happens is we lose sight of the larger context, the needs of the other person, or, or the circumstances in which the relationship is unfolding. And so Paul is calling out, the Apostle Paul is calling out that in those moments, we are more likely uh, to be rude. And to be rude is obviously another one of those warning signs. The non-loving person not only is rude, but, but outwardly insists on getting his or her own way. Kind of, if the jostling and the posturing that's been part of the relationship in the first in the first part, the zeal, the boasting, the arrogance, the rudeness, those are sort of indirect ways of trying to get our way. Now Paul says the person steps out and just says, you know, it's got to be this way. Now insisting, this is, I had a conversation too uh, with somebody between services about this. This is a kind of a, a nuanced thing, right? Because there are times when insisting in a relationship is the right thing to do. So how do you sort that out? I mean, think of, the, think of the wild case, you know, the fireman who is insisting that he gets inside the car that's burning to pull out the person, you know, right? We want people to insist. As parents, we insist that our kids don't run out blindly into the road. And we'll even physically grab them if we think they're about to do so. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. To insist is not always wrong. So how do you, how do you sort that out? When is insisting the wrong thing. And if you look at the text, what does it say? It says insisting on its own way. It does not insist on its own way. So we're again back to that realm where the insistence is connected to my personal desires. Now, again, even that's sort of tricky because sometimes our desires are important. The things that that we need are important. So it really gets into that space of motivation. What is causing the insistence? Is it, is it, is it a, a particular need or is it something that I just want? My son the other day said to me, um, I said I was going to the store and I, and I said, do you need anything from the store? He said, well, I don't need anything, but I'd like some orange juice. I thought that was a good way to, to, to respond. And I was chewing on that and thinking it with, in relation to this text, um, you know, when we insist on needing certain things, sometimes we get confused. We insist on needing something that we maybe just actually want. And so this is the deep work that we, we need to engage in this process of sorting out what are those things that are genuine needs. And remember, we're, we live in the West where we have so much. And so it's easy, easy for us to mistake wants and needs. Because we spent most of our lives, you know, having a lot of, of things. There's something powerful about when we walk with Jesus, we discover over time more and more the things that we thought we needed, we don't actually need. 
we can do without. That's the beautiful work that Jesus is doing in us. He's teaching us how to die to self. And to put more and more things in the category of, I don't need that because I have, I have, I have the Lord and he's enough. Right? So this is an important part of the process. And it's one of the warning lights that comes on for us. And then um, we won't spend too much time in this, but the last two, irritability and resentfulness, I think, you know, this is for that moment when the person has finally not gotten what they wanted in the relationship. So it start, they came into the re- relationship with that zeal um, and, and now it's not gone the way that they wanted. And so the fallout is irritability, which is a lack of wanting to engage in conversation, wanting you know, to, to have the patience to, to be in it. And then, and then that resentfulness, which is, a, which is sort of a, a reserving of my generosity towards you. I'm, I'm now going to call, call it all back in and just sort of close in on myself. And when we, when we don't get our way, you know, that's, that's what we sometimes resort to. And, and if that's happening or that irritability, then Paul, you know, really would be saying to us, that's a warning light for you. That's, you need to engage. You need to figure out, you need to discern what's happening at the root of this. Proverbs 25 says, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. And I really think that's what the Apostle Paul has done in this little list in a masterful way. I've been sitting with it all week. Maybe you're just encountering it here. I want to encourage you to sit with it throughout the course of this next week and to lay it on top of your relationships and just observe how some of your harder relationships are being shaped by these very human tendencies that we have that are listed in this text. I really think Paul's done a masterful job uh, of showing the warning lights to us. So the question then becomes, you know, I, I think what, what, what we do is we, we go on maturing in Christ. We, we, you know, the light has to be less and less bright. I think in some of these areas for me, man, it, it had to be like sledgehammer on the head, bright light, warning, blaring horn before I would clue in on it in my life, right? And by God's grace, where I sense that he is leading me and wanting to lead all of us is to a place where we can, we can more quickly and easily sense the warning lights and make the corrections that need to be made. That's the beautiful work that God is doing uh, in us. And at this point, I think one, one of the things, the temptation as a preacher is to say, well, let me, let me give you some tips and some tricks on how to address the warning lights. Here are some things that you can do. And uh, there's probably a sermon that would go like that, or at least a teaching like that. In some ways, I feel like that's a little bit more what the motivational speaker would do. But I'm a preacher, not a motivational speaker, right? And so I think there's actually something more beautiful and more wonderful than tips and tricks for dealing with our irritability, dealing with our resentfulness, dealing with our arrogance and our pride. There's, there's something yet more magnificent and powerful and wonderful. And I've, I've tried to capture it in this phrase um, in the next part. Um, the phrase is, let yourself be loved into loving. And where this is going to go uh, is really to think about, you know, 
you could try to fix yourself in all of these areas to become a more loving person. Um, I had a car when I was in high school that had a loud muff, it had loud uh, exhaust because there was some sort of crack in the muffler. And I thought that I could fix it. I spent an entire summer when I was in high school underneath this car trying to fix this, you know, muffler. And by the end of the summer, I was at my wits end and the car was just as loud as it had been before, right? Blaring and there was still this, I wasn't able to fix it. I wasn't able to fix it on my own. And sometimes we are like that with ourselves when it comes to love. We, we keep trying to fix ourselves. And the, and the message of this passage is go to the mechanic. Go to the one who has the power and the tools and the know-how and the skill to do what you couldn't do on your own. To bring about the kind of change that you couldn't bring about on your own. And so that's where we want to go with this. And I, and I see it in verse 12. So look with me in, in verse 12 in the passage. Um, it's, it's a little bit tangential, but I, I, I want to pull out where, how this comes. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully And here's the phrase I want you to really lean into, underline it in your Bible. Even as I have been fully known. Even as I have been fully known. This is the Apostle Paul writing this. Now remember Paul, whose name was Saul, was on the road to Damascus when Jesus presented himself to him, the risen Jesus, and said to him, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? Because Saul was a zealous Jewish leader who was chasing down Christians to kill them. Remember we said murder is really like the far extreme of the opposite of love, right? Rather than giving yourself for somebody else, it's taking their life. And Paul was in, so Paul was there at the far extent of non-loving. And yet here was Jesus coming to him To say, why are you persecuting me? And then to go on and build a relationship with Saul that included changing his name and calling him into a life of purpose and meaning in his own kingdom, Jesus' own kingdom building. And Paul never forgot that. He never forgot the incredible love that Jesus lavished on him. He never, for it, it changed him forever. And you can see it. He wrote about it in different places. He wrote about it in the beginning of, or the next couple of chapters of this book in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. He says, here he's, I, he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because, into, uh, because I persecuted the church of God. So he knows. He's floored. He's overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus knows him and yet loves him. First Timothy says, also something powerful. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, Paul says, the apostle Paul says. See, he had this ongoing awareness of the grandeur and the wonder of God's love and grace for him. And that was the hallmark of his transformation into becoming a loving person. See, the natural human impulse would be to say, the solution to um, our failed attempts to love is to hide them. Right? That's what we always want to do with sin. We want to hide it away. We think somehow that hiding equals healing. That's been going on ever since Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sin, and they hide it. They hid. Hide it. They hid. Because we have the mistaken notion that healing comes from hiding. But that's not where healing comes from. Healing doesn't come from hiding. Healing comes from being fully known and yet loved. Isn't that freedom? Isn't that, isn't that amazing? To, come to, the, to, to realize that God knows all the ways that you have failed to love and yet has chosen to continue to have relationship with you in Jesus Christ and to pour out his love upon you for all eternity. Put it this way. Have you ever had a friend or um, maybe you're in a season with a spouse or a family member or a coworker, and their approach to you was to judge you for failing to love, let's just say. Then you had somebody in your life who knew all the ways in which you messed up or failed and loved you anyway. Which one compelled you on towards greater love? It's a person who knows you and loves you anyway, right? Not the person who's judging you and condemning you all the time. And God has, in Christ, God has taken that posture with us. He has, he has decided to set his love upon. And this is the thing that Paul, the Apostle Paul, couldn't fathom because of all the awful things that he had done, but he just kept sitting in and under the incredible grace and the love of God. And that's what transformed him over time. And that's what will transform us over time. The Apostle John describes this in an interesting way in 1 John 1.8. He says, this, this whole idea of rather than hiding, of having it be made known and, and, and then experiencing the love of God anyway. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's not in the hiding that the healing takes place, but it's in the transparency and the realization that God knows who we are in all of our warts and flaws and sins. And in Christ, he loves us anyway. And that's a message that it takes time to absorb. In fact, I think, pretty sure, it takes an entire lifetime. And then some. Pretty sure we're going to be in heaven someday, continuing to understand and learn more about the depth 
and the richness of God's grace and his love in Christ Jesus and, and, and the transformative effect that that has on us. I was, I was trying to think of an image to help gather, just give us a picture for this. And the image that came to mind is that the grace of God is like water dripping incessantly on hard rock, wearing it away and creating a channel through which it can flow freely. And the grace of God drips incessantly on our rock hard hearts and it creates a channel in the midst that allows the water, the love of God to flow through us to others. If that's true, then here's the application. Get under the grace of God. Get under the grace of God. Do you want to love more? Let him love you into becoming more loving. Bring it all. Just open yourself up, all your flaws and warts and failures and sins, and receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And it's not just one time. I, if you, I find this is, I, without this, I die. I can't go forward. Daily, I need to step into the shower of the grace of God. I'm pretty sure that's how Paul was able to do all the amazing things he was able to do, despite having been a murderer. Mm. The grace of God. Let yourself be loved into loving. God, would you rain down your grace upon us anew? Help us to know in our unique and individual ways what it means to present ourselves to you, to, to, to climb under the shower of your grace through prayer and through community that reinforces your truths to us in our home groups, through words of encouragement to one another, through, through, through the scripture, uh, getting ourselves in front of the words of scripture that remind us of the forgiveness, to, to, to think, to meditate on people like Paul who went from being this murderer and he, and he still understood that he was the least and the worst and the foremost sinner and yet he, he was so bold in his love because he'd been loved into loving. Lord, love us into becoming more loving, we pray. And let that give us freedom and joy and transformation for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.